listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. We got Ja Schwa Reed back today. I like to keep them separate, and that's what I'm going to do here moving forward. Uh, we had an interview with you, Ja Schwa, what, a month ago? Just over a month? And Yeah, just uh, about that. And we had a really good conversation. We were, like, webbing off and, like, riffing in multiple directions, and it was fun getting to know you. And then we started talking about your sort of philosophy on ultra training and all sort of the stuff you're into we will call it in that regard your beliefs practices we never like got to it is that what i'm remembering right bracken and we wanted to chat out more specifically that side of things today that's a big 10 four. Ten. i assume he has a cb radio on that bus or a ham radio <laughs> copy that so where did we leave off did we leave it that cut uh, and dry basically like we had just got into we were, you know we were talking about like muscular endurance for a little bit and then we were talking about like aerobic training intensities and then you had to go and that was that and that Don't was that. me talk about races we were getting excited about some races that were coming up by the way congrats on your 800 fast than i'll ever run one thank you very much don't don't you dare put limits on yourself <laughs> without limits my apologies. Downhill dude, counts. 203 is, 203 is token. Downhill does not count, <laughs> dude. <laughs> At some point, it counts. At some point, like how many feet? How many feet per mile? You know, like what's the gradient? We can still count. You know, like you go run like a half with three thousand feet of loss, and mm-hmm. you, you know, and you PR by minutes. I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. Do you want to know my Strava PR for four hundred? Perfectly 400 meter downhill. I've run 43 seconds in the quarter in the recent four years, fellas. In case any of you are wondering, and it was legit. That was at Highland. 906 in the two mile. It was at Highland. I was just looking at that. I think that was the same day. Yeah, 43 seconds, isn't it? I think I ran 46 or something there that day. (laughs) Because I was looking back after this run to see, like, what are my Strava actual PRs that it lists as my personal best? And Mm -hmm. none of them make sense. Because the mile I have is faster than my 1K or something like that. Like pace-wise is faster. So clearly I split faster during that mile than my 1K. But the 400 said 46. Like, oh, my goodness. They got me biking or something one day. And it was, no, it was at Highland with you. Ripping a downhill. Yeah, we did it. We did it legit style, man. Amazing. You ever have, uh, you ever like accidentally stop your watch? during a run or stop it on purpose like take a leak or something and then you start running you're like oh shit i forgot to restart it and then you hit go and then it jumps you and then you look at strava it's like pr one second for the 400 i've never got I've the jump the, the jump benefit but i got in the car one time and drove home and i got people that. are doing that now so the parking lot was the start point of an 800 meter rep workout that i'd always have and so i made a segment for it and leaving the parking lot and driving home along it i set my 800 meter pr then I had to go back in and flag myself to Strava. <laughs> you flagged yourself. Not to, not to change the subject, but Joshua, I guess before we get into uh, this, did I see something about you getting engaged or you have got you got married or you have a, the love of your life at, at minimum? What did I see? Something very nice and lovey on your social media. What happened? Yeah, two of the three. No, I am engaged to the love of my life. <laughs> yeah. 
Hey, congratulations. <laughs> Muchas gracias. What do you like about her, Josh? Holy crap. Uh, dude, that's a that's a loaded question. What's not to like? <laughs> I feel like, on the spot. like any girl that I've... Oh, my God. <laughs> Every girl that I've ever dated that listens to this podcast is going to be like, oh, I didn't have that. So I'll be to put it real simple. Is Are you worried about the girls that you dumped versus your fiance? I think only one person. What's the Venn diagram overlap say? of our <laughs> podcast listeners who you've I'm dated? Gonna, I'm gonna ignore both questions and just Did say you that have she's a absolutely gorgeous. Face, we get to run Josh. together. Okay. Did, didn't we all, Kirk? <laughs> no, definitely not. No, <laughs> Mr. Besser. <laughs> 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 yeah, we all can't I find mean, the love of our life when we're 14, Bracken. Okay, I was 20. Amazing. Okay, well, I still going great. You're an anomaly. <clears throat> right, I'm an anomaly. Thank you for Appreciate recognizing that. I'm not done yet, Josh. So, how did did you propose in like a formal way, or did you like light some incense and do something more Joshua centric? What did you do? Anything particular? Well, I guess that's that's interesting. I I've always kind of been, I suppose, non-traditional, not really sure how I felt about marriage. And so, I mean, being with her for the past couple of years, we both already felt like, yeah, we're for sure going to be together forever. We weren't really sure how we felt about the whole marriage thing, but she is 27 and a half. And so like 10,000 days is about those two things go together. Like, so your 10,000th day of being alive is somewhere around 27 and a half. If for some reason that day always popped out to me, maybe it's from like a tool song called 10,000 days, but I always thought it was freaking cool. So I know I wanted to be with her basically forever. And then that day was coming up. So I waited for that day. I'm like, yo, if shit's still good on that 10,000th day for 10,000th day, I'm definitely going to propose. So what we actually did is we went and got matching tattoos on that day. And, uh, and you know, like ring finger tattoos are cute little things. And later that night, I was like, ah, screw it. Let's make it official. And I got down on a knee for the sunset, you know, on the river in the Hudson Valley. Beautiful. And uh, proposed there to make it official. Those weren't your words, right? What's that? Ah, screw it. Let's make it official. Not the ah, screw it part. But the let's make it official (laughs) part. Yeah. Okay. Which is a shocker. I mean, no, it's surprise to her because she knows that I'm kind of like non-traditional. So be like, yeah, let's let's freaking do this right now. Was a Congratulations. Bit, uh, pleasant surprise. Dude, thanks, man. Are you going to stick with the tattoo rings or are we going to get a physical ring? No, we'll get some uh, legit ones. Like, I got her one. Uh, um, mine was a little bit too big. Apparently, I am, if we're going to talk about size here, gentlemen, I'm, uh, I think, about nine and I got 10. It's just a little bit loose, especially in the cold. Maybe summertime it'll fit well, but it was just like hanging off my finger. So I'm not wearing it right now, but I got the. Uh, I got the the tattoo on there, you know, for Bracken, kids. Bracken, how big are you? I got four, four and a half. <laughs> what are you actually? Because you got the... You ever, we, we, haven't, we haven't made fun of Bracken's hands in a while. I'm a nine as well. I got a nine, Josh. Uh, make fun of his hands? We made, he can pull a basketball. Have, no, I can't. Yeah, we haven't made... <laughs> I, I guess I get... You don't know the I size of your ring? Basketball. No, I don't. Mm. Yeah, the only mm. thing I even had to reference was I had an aura ring that was a size 11, and I had that thing going back and forth between my index and my middle finger. I was like, uh, you know, I feel like I put that in my ring finger once or twice. Maybe it was a hot day. I thought, well, one size down is good, but I was wrong. I had to go two sizes down. Mm. Mm. So that's in the mail. Life's quandaries. Hey, I have Do one you know random question. You are? I- You're the most recently married here. 
Me? Yeah, I'm yeah, the same as him. I'm a nine. I'm a nine. It says it on the inside. Nine. We're the same. We're. Did you did did you get a? Is that like silicone or is it metal? I got a couple silicone, and then I have two wedding rings actually, because um, Jess couldn't decide which one she liked more. So, and I couldn't either. So she's like, just keep them both. So I have two actually. Different ones. One to dress up outfits. and one to dress down. Yeah, I got a lot of outfit. So a lot of outfit changes. Um, random question because I'm curious to hear your answer, Josh, and then let's get into this. Um, what are your thoughts on training well, sick or coming off of being sick? I have a feeling you have thoughts on this. I'm just coming off about a COVID. Uh, I did my first run today in eight days. So I took eight full days off and I did a recovery run today. It's the longest period of time I've taken off from being sick in quite a while. And I'm not back to square, but I have no fever and, you know, I'm start. I'm coming out of the abyss, I think. And Do you have any philosophies it. on that? So we're on the same page. It rocked, it rocked pretty good. Yeah, it rocked me pretty good. And I'm sure there's others yeah. out there. I got a couple athletes are feeling the same way. Do you have any thoughts? It's that time of year, man. Yeah. Yeah. The I feel like the wisdom that seems and feels pretty true is if it's above the neck, you can go ahead and train. If it's below the neck, you should take some time off. Like if it's in your chest, if you got fever, uh, you know, chills, aches in your body, you should you should not train. But oftentimes if you just have like a runny nose, little head cold not a big deal. Maybe don't do the intensity. You don't want to like weaken your immune system, but a little bit of, a little bit of training doesn't seem to be bad, but I had an interesting thing happen this past fall. I got rocked by something, man. I don't know what was going around. Uh, I tested negative for COVID, but for six weeks, I was just gargling out of my lungs. Like every breath was wheezing, gargling, but my energy was fine. My strength, my body, everything felt great. Uh, clear head and all that. But just my lungs were in horrendous shape. So, like, what the hell do I do? I mean, it's, you know, blow the neck. I'm not going to really train. But that was challenging because it was six weeks. I ran all of, like, 20 miles over the course of those six weeks. And basically just did strength training. So, I was like, all right, that's my my off season. But I practiced what I preached. And I stayed off of the, the stuff that was agitating it and the cardio, you know, because it was blow the neck. So, what would you lean into and, uh, during the six weeks? Lunges. Lunges. <laughs> lots of strength training and it skyrocketed it skyrocketed because uh number one i hadn't focused on strength that much and also i just didn't have so much of uh the interference you know i just wasn't as tired from all of the the cardio so yeah mm -hmm. my my lunge went from like 225 to 275 and uh in those six weeks so that was fun i I, th I agree with your principles. Uh, the only problem is it's like not so cut and dry sometimes, right? Like, okay, yeah, you have a head cold and you got snot and you're not, you know, but you also wake up and you just feel icky. Like you can't say I have aches and pains or fever, but you wake up and you're like, I don't feel good, right? There's like that gray area where you're like, I could, right? But should I? It's very cut and dry if your lungs are full or you have a fever, I feel like. But a lot of us just fall in that, you know, that category like the first few days of being sick or the last few days where you're like, you could argue either way, you know, I, my philosophy is yeah. turned into take it easy. Don't rush it. Don't rush it, man. I mean, like you guys, I've, I've, since I heard you guys say it, I've said it probably a dozen times, you know, pay now or pay later. It's like, be a little bit conservative right now. Uh, maybe go out for like an easy 30 as like, it shouldn't feel like work at all. And then if the next day you feel the same, or better, great, go do it again. But if you feel worse, like, all right, day off. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the other principle I go by. Like, is it the better? Is it better? Is it the same? Or is it worse? Like, if, it's, if you're better, green light. If it's the same, eh, yellow. And if it's worse, red. Stop. I like that. Yeah. I'll say this. I edited our Training Tuesday this week, and it was the grossest episode I've ever had to edit. 
And I don't know if I noticed it as much in the moment, but Kirk, you had like, I would say 35 gurgly sniffs, like 15 (laughs) throat clears that were like vomit inducing. And then like six of the wettest burps I've ever heard in my in my ears <laughs> and i've got like the in-ear headphones going Crazy the monitoring headphones uh and i didn't i didn't notice as much real time but in the editing booth i was like i'm gonna have to edit every second of this yes because so i'm just like so <laughs> sorry <laughs> i i think i listened to that one yeah i think i just listened to that was that where you were just talking about uh kirk you were talking about like 5k and uh and what you what you're like headed with that was that your like wrap up for no. the year? It was the next was one two ago. That. Yeah. Oh, okay. Just came I heard out. some. I heard some low key coughs. I was like, Bracken, you missed. That it was here. the start of it. That was the start of it. Bracken didn't even you didn't even hold that over my head. Bracken, it's the first I'm hearing from it. You're a big man. I was going I'm to sorry. message you in the moment, and then I got distracted. But it was I would part of me was real close, but I didn't have the time to do it because I was editing at like. 10 p.m. like always but i wanted to make a just a greatest hits of your noises like 35 seconds of just your grossness and then uh and then send that to you i was Dude, you guys gargling such thick phlegm that like i would go to cough and it would get like stuck in my windpipe and i would go into like a like choke because i it would get caught like it was like paste it was the most disgusting. And then I would get like a little panicky and have to breathe through my nose and slow it down. But like, have you, it was so gross. So I could see that coming through that way. Whoops. Kirk, are you like running to the bathroom or, or out your door to, to spit these things out? Or are you doing it like high school wrestler status and just have a little Poland Springs bottle next to you at all times? Maybe I'm swallowing it. Oh my God. I've wondered about that. No, like, I am I, is this my, <laughs> I was going to say, is the body's way of trying to get rid of like these bacteria and stuff? If I swallow it, am I going to make everything worse? Yeah, if I can chew it, might as well. It's got to be something in there. Well, I'll do my best to control it. I'm I'm a little better today. So, um, yes, Josh. Oh, you sound great. No, when when uh, when Bracken said that you wanted to like make a a video clip of just all your your noises, have you guys you know who Randy Savage is? Uh, Mm -hmm. The yeah yeah. There's there's a video on YouTube of him just like sounding like a pug. It was some funny like real thing and it's just him like inhaling before he goes and says something because you know that dude was always on always on drugs and just like having an aneurysm at all time and before everything he would say be like it's just a video of all of his clips of him doing that <laughs> it's hilarious if we were a radio show i'd have a couple buttons queued up with kirk's burps on it for when people say stuff <laughs> i've never heard you burp like remember. this kirk it was it was exceptional I'm not like a girl's human, I'd like to think in general, but that must no. not have been my finest finest moment. Um, let's move on from me. How how about that? Um, yeah. Hit, hit, may I? Please. <laughs> All right. So I want to start right off the bat and treat you like just a resource. The single most prolific question we get is, what are your thoughts on training for an ultra on low volume? And I don't know why I use like a... A weird voice for that because it's a great question but we get it all the time and it doesn't matter how many times we talk about it we still get it like people want either permission to do it or they want permission to ridicule people who do it so i just want to turn it over to you low running volume ultra prep a is it feasible b how close to your ceiling can you get and then c what's your implementation 
you don't have to give away all the juice. Just a few drops. Yeah. I mean, there's if someone came to me and said they want to do a hundred K, but they can't they can't give more than twenty miles a week, I'd say no. I'd say that is not you are not meeting the minimum right there. Uh mm-hmm. you know, for a hundred miler, if you if you can't put more than like thirty five or forty, and I'd be like, mm. I don't know, man, you're going to be in a, a lot of pain. I don't know if you're going to have a good time. You know, so I might make some recommendations to cut the distance down. If you're doing a 50 K. Yeah. I think, I think 30 miles a week you can, uh, you can get by on and not die too hard out there. So I'll tell you what, give me, give me a race distance and the mileage they can give. And we'll go from there. Ooh, you're, you're just going to stand behind some black and white numbers. <laughs> you need the numbers, man. Okay. Uh, let's start at the, the bare minimum then of ultra distance, 50 K. Can I interject real quick? I'd like to add one handcuff to this conversation. Uh, I know let's get weird fellas. Um, I think, I think we should have the caveat. I think in this vein, we should have two camps completion and like crushing like 95% of capability versus completion. I think are very different. I don't know if we need to distinguish or not. I think we need to know in which vein we're having this conversation. Completion versus competition. <laughs> Perfect. Is that fair? Word. All right. I will. I am. <laughs> I always give, give so much detail and ask so many questions, but I will try for you guys and for the people listening to be general. Just so, dive into the weeds. Let's, let's not even put we on tires. Let's live there. <laughs> Well, of course, I mean, you guys know, you, you know, when, when we're, when we take somebody on, we have so many questions for them. We got the questionnaire. It's like, what's your history? What's your background? What are you currently capable of doing? Uh, or what do you at least think you're capable of doing? And if we don't have any good answers, we'll give them some stuff off the bat to find out. But the history matters. You know, is it a, someone with a strength background? Is it someone that's coming off of the couch? Like all of those things are relevant. Um, you know, I've taken, I'm sure you guys have t- as well. If you take someone who has a big strength background, and they have that durability to jump in some higher mileage or get into more of that strength endurance stuff. And they're so much further along than someone who's coming off of the couch. That person might be able to do, might be able to stick to their their squats and run 35 miles a week. Whereas the other person running 35, they're frail. You know, they're doing the same mileage, but just the background isn't there and they're frail. So what are the minimums? It certainly depends, as we, we like to say. But if you're doing just mileage and you're not doing strength, whatever, you have a aversion to doing strength work already, then I still think that 35 miles can get you there. Because uh, if, if we're talking about time constraints, because that ends up being a big determining factor in what our training looks like. If you have all the time in the world, I mean, shit, get out into the mountains and do 20, uh, 20 hours of Z1 every week right? But we don't have that. So we have this constraint. So the less volume you end up doing, the more intense it can kind of be, you know, granted you can obviously still recover from it. I mean, there's people that are, are sleeping like four hours a night. They got full families. So how hard can they run? The five hours that they have to run a week is going to be different for them than someone who has great sleep, not a lot of energy going elsewhere. Their job's just time consuming. It's not necessarily demanding. But ultimately, if you can only do 35 miles a week, go as intense as you can, you know, and still recover from it. Mm-hmm. So run as much as, so the, I think the more black and white answer is run as much as you possibly can. And then once you're maxed out time-wise, ramp up the intensity. 
and do as intense as you basically can and still recover. I like that. Jump up to 100K, 62-ish miles. 62-ish. The, the country was your really answer for performance by the way was that a performance answer like you believe you could race well on 35 miles a week mm, if you're just uh going to a, a local race you'll probably show up and, and hold your own people be like nice but i mean if you're going to show up to you know broken arrow or something something big you're no one's going to know you no one's going to know you so mm. that was more completion than actual than actual performance it's funny because so often as a coach, I try to push people to frequency. Like let's, let's, let's try to add some more frequency, even if it's little, let's try to start there and see what we can do. But if someone wanted to compete in a 50 K off 35 miles a week, I might push them to less frequency. Like I could, in my opinion, I think the only way you could compete at a decently high level on 35 a week in a 50 K is at least two of the runs are going to have to be big, big runs. And you might have to do a crazy amount of muscular endurance and, and cross training on top of that. Like you might only get to run two or three times a week if you want to spend your 55, your 35 credits wisely, which is flies in the face of mm. everything I believe as a coach. I would never tell a 5k runner, let's just go run two to three times a week and maximize that. But for a 50k, I don't know if there's a, another route to interject. All right. So in. that was. That was my route. Um, I was only running three days a week, and I ran very well in a, the Superior Trail 50K, like, I don't know, 13 minutes off the course record. And I was running three days a week. That was it. And I was running 30 to 35 miles a week. But there was a lot of supplementary stuff going on, like the bike all right. and the cross-country skiing. I'll spring. So there's the caveats, right? Like, I did it, and I nailed it. I'll be honest. I did. I had a great race. But... The asterisk is there was additional stuff layered in when I couldn't run. Mm -hmm. So like we're trying to probably leave that out of this conversation, right? I mean, I think that's a reasonable thing to have in there. Again, it all comes down to how much time do you have to train? Uh, it's like, yeah, run as much as possible. And if you are maxed out on that and you still have the, the energy, increase the intensity of the running. But if you're not running for another reason, like you have time to do more, but you literally just can't no matter how uh, slow you go, then the cross training goes real far. And I, the more you know, the more experience that I get as a coach, I uh, believe more in like the engine is engine thing that you guys talk about and run just enough to get that sort of uh, uh, mechanical fluency and obviously the impact. But I love the conversation that you guys had about your preparation for that race, Kirk, and, uh, and how, you know, the pavement might beat you up, but like it beats you up. And that was kind of the durability aspect. And then you got, mm -hmm a lot of fitness from doing other things. So, so that is another category. And if you do a lot of other cross training, then now, now I would say you can perform really well at, at an ultra. And someone that is a really good example of that is Ryan Atkins, because to my knowledge, I don't know if he posts everything on Strava, but that guy is, he's biked for so long, whether it was on a unicycle or it was on a mountain bike or a road bike. Like, that dude does so much volume of, I guess, what we would call cross-training to him. It's, you know, sport. He does biking. But that biking contributes so much to his cardio and, and to his muscular endurance. You know, that's kind of the cool thing about the bike. And then he runs just enough to get that mechanical fluency. And he's talked about it, how he went and did, I think it might have been Jacksonville, where he didn't win. I don't know if that was the year that Kempson won. But after that, he said, like, oh, I, I should have run more it's like the fitness was there but just that mechanical fluency wasn't quite where it needed to be so what does that mean he was doing like 
15 or 20 miles of running a week. And he felt like he should have been at 35 or 40. But that that's a great example of if you're building your engine over here, you can get by on pretty little running. You know, it's like you build the engine and then the running you do is specific. It's quality. It's all quality. He's a great example of that. And I was just watching this morning in the San Luis Obispo race when I was on the treadmill. And he is up there next Why? to me. Why? Why? Why of all races are you going through all the way back to that race? Because I just finished the 2021 season and this kicked off 2022. Oh, you're going back through it all. I appreciate that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's been, I was doing a lot of ultra races and now I'm back watching OCR. But what struck me that Ryan was up there in all of these races, he gets out. He's a really intelligent racer, but he also gets out very aggressively and he's running with people that he shouldn't on paper run with, but he has such an engine and such a body of work that I think he might be the, maybe the best person in our sport, the most intelligent at pairing what type of running he does to the rest of his training to be ready for a course. He came out and won Jacksonville one year. He came out and ran with some really good people in San Luis Obispo. He shows up after doing the Iditarod and wins the Big Bear Super that same season, the race after uh, San Luis Obispo, I believe is what it was. Hey, he just, he knows how to pair the skill of what he needs running wise with the engine he can build elsewhere. And I think he balances that equation as well as anyone, but he still will throw in 80 mile a week sometimes knowing that I need durability and time on feet prior to this ultra I'm going to do. But I think that might be one of his most underlooked talents is how he pairs things together. Yeah, man, it's uh, he's definitely a pretty great example. And I've used that successfully with other individuals, like taking that, that model and seeing that, that, that works. I've done that and seen, seen that, that, that works. But I mean, still at the end of the day, like if you have time, like Atkins or even like myself, a lot of us, if we have the time to do all this stuff, that, that is going to get you to the top. I mean, you guys just had an awesome conversation with, uh, was it Charlie Lawrence, the 50 mile record holder now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 140 mile weeks. I think maybe it was four weeks at that, but he did lots of like 120s and the amount of quality that that dude did. It's like, that's an example of kind of what it takes to be at that level. And some of us just aren't gifted, you know, enough out of the womb to go and do something like that. And some of us just don't have the the time to build up to something like that. Uh, so, you know, it's not like boo-hoo for all of us. We can still do super duper well, but be a little realistic. Well, that's a great example. And then I'm going to dive off on a tangent, but what's a 140 mile week time-wise to a guy whose 50 mile pace is 546 per mile? Like what's the time demand, people who are better at math than I am, of a 140 mile week for an elite runner? He's probably doing 12 to 14 hours. Okay. We know a lot of people who train 12 to 14 hours a week. They'll do their six hours of CrossFit, six hours of cycling, and two hours of running, and they're there. Like Not everyone. But there are a lot of people who can hit 10 hours per week. It just has to look different. But that time domain is not out of reach for a good-sized chunk of the population. 12.9 hours a week, roughly, if he's running 630 pace on average. And he's not. The math. Right. Nice. Yeah. So that's, that's attainable. 140 is not attainable for most people. Maybe eventually they can hit a 140 mile week, but stringing together four after doing 120 for eight, 
that's not attainable for most people. But 12 hours a week, many people can get to that. For sure. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you guys listen to uh, like Science of Ultra podcast, uh, Sean Bearden, you know, he's pointing out studies where there's direct correlations between total mileage run and estimated, uh, you know, placement in a race. So it mm-hmm. kind of comes down to is like more, more is better, basically. So you have someone that has the capability of running 140 miles in 12, 12.9 hours. And and this actually, this is pretty interesting because I think when you guys had Mark Battress on the podcast, maybe it was here. He was talking about how he doesn't see a need for anybody to do longer than a two hour yes, run. And I might've missed the context there. I don't mm-hmm. recall if he was referring to someone preparing you for did. a marathon or for a mountain race. Okay. Yeah, so I thought ultras. that was just a little, he was open. talking all the way up to hundred K. That's a little open because if you put somebody like, for example, he can do those 20 miles he can do 20 miles in two hours. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he might not even be, you know, over his v, uh, VT one. So not that hard for him to do 20 miles. If you put someone, I, I mean, I got some people that they'll, uh, for even a 10 miler in the mountains, you know, with 3000 feet of gain, mm-hmm. some rough terrain, that's going to be two hours. And that is not yeah. adequate mileage under the legs. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it's the problem with hard and fast rules. It's the problem with drawing a line is that there's always a huge chunk of the population that is the exception to that rule. A 12-minute miler trying to run a 100-mile race has to go longer than two hours. Mark Botras does not have to. And they're both right. <laughs> the rich get richer yes. in this scenario, which is yeah. unfortunate, but it really, it really is the case. Um, All right, so side you bar quick before you go, Kirk. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. I opened Instagram this morning to message our, our guest here today. And sitting at the top was Anthony Kunkel's story. And I opened it up. And Anthony likes to write expository dialogue on everything he does. But hidden in there was that he did four miles at marathon pace and then two miles at 50-mile pace in the midst of his run. And being a data looker, I, I looked, and you know what the 50-mile pace was? 5.45. Do you have inside information that Anthony Kunkel is gearing up for a 50-mile world record attempt? Is this one of the big things on his agenda this year? Because there's no way possible that Lawrence sets 5.46 as the new pace record, and Kunkel goes out and runs 5.44 or 5.45 and calls it 50-mile pace. What are, what are we looking at here, Josh? So I haven't talked to him in probably, I don't know, seven or eight months. The okay. We all kind of left the ultra house for one reason or another, mm-hmm. but he was, he had talked about that. And I think that that's a good decision for him because he, you know, puts a lot of emphasis on, on fat adaptation and he runs a certain pace out there. You know, we've seen his marathon, I think 220 or 219. He has some wheels He's a little bit far away from the the trials, you know, a qualification, but he has a lot of success in that 50 mile and like hundred K realm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think he should do that. I haven't heard him outright say like, I'm going for this. This is the date. But back when we were hanging out, that was on his radar. So it wouldn't surprise me. And I hope he is because he'll probably do pretty well at that. Yeah. He's geared to do well at it. Yeah, it's like he has the speed to do it, right? Like marathon training is like overspeed for it. 
And we can probably say that he's more metabolically fit for that sort of thing for the longer race. So Mm -hmm. I think it would turn out well. Interesting. Just interesting timing, seeing that and thinking there's all these people out here having their eyes on their thing. And we almost never are aware of like this big prep that's happening for someone somewhere about to go after something huge. Yeah. Last I Mm -hmm. talked to him, he was getting ready to do like 160 mile weeks. That's what he was gearing up for. I mean, for him, it's always kind of been the, the trial of miles. You know, from an outside view, I think he should be doing things a little differently. But, you know, that's just that's just my coach mentality. I'm like, you should be doing a little bit more threshold work. You should be introducing more carbohydrate. But he is sticking to his guns, and he wants to show that what he's doing works. And I'm excited to see that. I'm excited to see if it works. You remember like 12 minutes ago when Bracken asked you how many miles were needed to run 100K and we haven't gotten into it yet? Um, what about that question, Josh? <laughs> no fault to you. Well, that is because you have ADD hosts. I'm, Dude, I'm right with you, boys. Uh, HD. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah. So, now we have a few different categories, right? We have the competitive. We have the, com- the completion. And then we have the cross trainer, right? So... If you're just doing mileage for the hundred K, I think, I think 40 miles, you know, to complete it, I think 40 miles, you know, whatever the quality looks like within that, I think you've got to be on your feet 40 miles and we're not talking about time. We're going by mileage right now. Okay. I think 40 miles to complete it and not have the worst day of your absolute life. I think that without cross training to actually be competitive, I think that 60 to 70, because you could also have a bunch of Burton there. So if you're doing, again, you know, we're not looking at hours, talking about miles. So if you're talking about 60 miles with some really good terrain in there and some good quality in there, there's people that have shown they can do exceptionally well off of that low mileage. And then going back to the cross trainer, now you have all 35 or 40 miles, really good quality. And then you also have to, to use hours now. Now maybe you have like eight hours of cross training. It's like, damn, yo, you have a solid engine and you have a lot of miles under your feet. So you're like mechanically fluent. And if you're doing that at pace, like lots of race pace, I feel like that person would be really well prepared. It's interesting. I'm just thinking like if I had to make some hard and fast rules, like is dumbing it down to the point of, uh, okay, the race distance, like make sure you hit that weekly mileage and you'll be somewhere between I can complete it and I can crush it. Like, is it that simple? And you'd say, well, for a marathon, 26 miles a week or like 31 and a half miles a week for a 50K, like that can't be enough. But like, where does it end? Like a lot of people who race hundreds well, barely run hundred miles a week. You go to the Moab 240 and like, oh, cause I can't run 240 miles a week. Then I'm not able to complete that. Like then there's a point in which the scale doesn't matter anymore. Right. You're like, okay, well now like, it's just about survival or whatever the case may be. So like, it's kind of a catch 22 because I don't think you can say one rule rules them all. I really don't. Where does the, where does the rule start and where does it end to ask somebody to run 240 mile weeks before they tow the the line at Moab isn't going to happen. Right. So like, I think in that mid range of looking at completion, I think taking the race distance and then saying, can I at least run that many miles in a week? Like you're probably going to go out there and fend for yourself probably at minimum or am i wrong where 5k that couldn't be true for then could it because it's only three miles a week like where does it start where's it end? i'm just posing these questions i don't have answers to guys 
watch it. Okay, and somebody listening to this podcast, please do like eight hours of cross training every week and literally just run like an all out five k once a week for like ten weeks to see how much you improve. What a sacrifice! That'd be great. Get back, right? Maybe. <laughs> I, I one time on low volume, coming off of. Uh, an issue that kept me from doing volume, I ran a 5K time trial every four days, three times, leading up till seven days out from my race. So I ran three 5K time trials at like 95% effort in 12 days to try to just spearhead, like jumpstart the most fitness and efficiency I could cram into a two-week section and then rested for six days and then ran a race. That's as close as I've come to testing this. Time to go. I felt tough. Yeah. I don't, I don't know like <laughs> how good of a runner I was, but I was comfortable running hard and hurting and it was a short enough race I could get away with. It was before a stadium race, but, uh, I don't know if it was smart or not, but it's something I tried doing. It was running a, a very, very hard 5k as every quality session. Did you get better in the 12 days? Did you notice, uh, I ran three different span? cross country courses so that I could not compare because I was too close to the race to have a mental setback. If I got slower each time, that would be too destructive for me. So I ran a uh, high school cross-country course. I ran UW Parkside, and I ran, I want to say, <laughs> McCarty Park in West Dallas Kirk. So I think you know mm. two of those three courses. Mm. Well, we should talk about the extremes here then. Who is uh, – you guys would know better than me. Is it Camila? Camila Massa? What's her name? Camille She Heron. runs – Karen. She runs – who's Camila Massa? Am I making that up? Or is that a track athlete? High Rocks athlete. Making that up. Oh, that's what it is. Um, Camila, what is she known for? Camille. Like she caps her long runs. Camille, she, whatever you guys get off your throne. <laughs> Camila, <laughs> like two hour long runs or so. She caps it up. Who knows her stats better yet? She goes and runs hundred mile races and sets course records. What's her deal? Let's talk about hers. Like the, the Northern light. Anybody so, uh, know what she's doing? Yeah. So, so mine. My understanding, what I've heard from her, I don't know if this has changed, but I, I believe for the longest time, I forget how many years it was, let's say three, four, or five, she was literally just like accumulating 100-mile weeks. So, you know, like 15, 20 miles a day. There was no long run. Every day was, quote, unquote, doubles a lot long. Of it was, it was mm -hmm. yeah, it was literally just, there was no emphasis on a particular day. It was just accumulate mileage in the most <laughs> like sustainable and steady way possible so she didn't have to do more than two hours a day you know because if she's going by hours if she did two hours a day it's 14 hours a week we did the math if she's you know she's not doing uh, uh charlie lawrence's pace but probably not super far behind so well, well over 100 miles you know in a yeah. pretty reasonable time frame for years yeah and that that mirrors what i've heard that she doesn't ever try to go beyond 20 she stacks as many 90-minute to two-hour runs and 60-minute doubles as possible, which mirrors mm -hmm. Mark Botris. He wants you running 90 minutes two to three times per week and two hours once per week and a lot of its quality. And she's – I think it was just broken, but she's, she was the 24-hour record holder for max distance in 24 hours. I think someone in Europe just broke it within the last month. I could be incorrect on that. but And she's, she's said it multiple times. But – she has also struggled historically any time the terrain gets worse. She doesn't run big vert races. She doesn't venture off-road very often. And part of that's a skill set. But the other is that 
there's significant body breakdown that occurs when you go past three hours on terrain. It's stabilizers and everything else gets used in a certain way that doesn't get taxed in the first two hours on the road. So she's extremely good at what she does and she sticks to it for the most part. And I think that if she wanted to do, like she could do probably go up to Comrades and Crush. But I think if she wanted to go do Western States or UTMB or something like that, she would suddenly become a proponent of some four-hour, five-hour efforts. Yeah, or just lower mileage like and, and higher vert. You know, it's yeah, like instead true. of 120 or 140 mile a week, now you have like a, a 90 or 100, but you have 15, 20, 25,000 feet of vert. You always pose the question because of her in spite of Bracken, and she's mm-hmm. one of the cases that I wonder, I wonder, and same with Mark Botches, to be honest, if Mark listens or not, but is it because of her in spite of, right? Like, yeah. is she really an example people should chase? Like just going out and running, I don't mean just to foo-foo it, but to run steady mileage and never go truly long, or are most people going to crash and burn the back half of anything they do on that model because they're actually human? It's like one of those Mm -hmm. things. How do you know? Yeah. And I think I would lump her, Botrys, Kunkel, all under the same umbrella of people that when they speak about what they do, they believe it with every fiber of their being. And it's so important for them. It's a mental weapon to believe that they are doing every second of their training correctly and better than other people believe it they are doing. Like knowing you have a secret, even if it's wrong, makes you feel special and important. And if that gets you out of day, out of bed and excited every day of training, you come to race day like with your mental capacity full to the brim. And I think all three of those people have some version of that where they just know they're doing what they specifically need to do. Mm. And I I don't think we can quantify how important that is as an athlete. Let's play a fun game. Oh, I think it's going to be a fun game. (laughs) Okay, Saw. (laughs) Yeah, so there's a closet and a bottle. I got both. You've spent your whole life running circles around a track. (laughs) Why don't we play this game and give our opinions? Let's go from the mile all the way up to a hundred miler common race distances and say our beliefs to the minimum length long run required to race your best for all distances. Let's start at the mile. Let's go mile five, a 10 K half marathon, 50 K hundred K hundred miler. And let's just spew out what we believe. As long as you're hitting this minimum for a long run, you're going to have a, you're going to go out and perform well. How do we feel about this game? You know I'm gonna fight you. Alphabetical, Bracken, me, Kirk. (laughs) (laughs) You you into it? Can we play this game? Let's let's play a game. Let's let's go by amount of hair. (laughs) That's the same. What's under that hat, Kirk? What's under that today? (laughs) Yeah. How about the most bloodshot eye? I'll go first. You like that, Josh? (laughs) You see that? Spectacles on. Ran into a stick, bro. What is that? Yeah, the other day. Work. I hit, hit a stick. I don't blame someone eye. like Browning running in clear glasses all the time. Looks yeah. funny, but damn, is it functional? All right. I'll kick it all off. All right. One for, mile. For a mile. I think that the minimum long run for a miler is three miles. But for maximum performance, I would say you should run at least eight to 10 each week. I think we talk maximum performance. I think we use maximum performance. Like it, getting, accessing, 95% of your potential. I think that was what we should go with. Yeah, 8 to 10 miles or I'm going to call it 70 minutes for a miler. I think they got to be going at least that long each week. I think 8 miles is I, 
Okay, yeah, I had ten in my head uh, before you guys said anything because yeah, they'll they can also probably have that done in yeah close to an hour. But in high school, five k, we, we ran three to four miles a day, and I was eleven seconds mm-hmm. off my all time PR in the mile doing that. Like, I think you can be a speed based approach, but you can't handle the rounds. You can't handle championship, prelim, mm-hmm. semifinal. That all nonsense. I also think it's an insurance policy. Having a little more under you in case you don't have your best day, it's like your insurance policy, right? Just a few yeah. miles might help you hang on to a respectable race on a day that's not your day, right? That's always part of it too. Yeah. Um, so what about 5K, Josh? What do you think? Minimum long run. <laughs> I mean, honestly, well, okay. So for performing really well, I you know, I'm going off of the things that I've read from people, you know, mostly in the ultra realm. So reading stuff from uh, Lydiard and from uh, Wetmore, I'm like, yo, 20. 20 seems to be so solid. I so guess we should clarify. Great. Are we talking in season or in season prep? Right before you're ready to crush. Just at the end of season prep into that, that nice seam there. Yeah, high level. I was going to say 14 to 16 is like the low end of what you'd want to run as a 5K runner. I think that I think above is better, but we have plenty of examples of people that don't go much past 12 who can run sub 14, but 20 is probably the most common 18 or 20 is probably the most common 5k long run distance for pros. I get a little pushback and I had a good conversation with one of the athletes I coach who's only focusing on 5k's really through the summer. And I still have them going out for two hours on the weekend. And they're like, why do I need to be going for two hours on the weekend? I'm only racing for 20 minutes. And I was like, good point. But you know, people don't real people don't realize how common it is to run that far, even though you're only a 5k athlete. My, my answer was going to be 12 miles. Actually, if your, if your week was infused with like medium mileage runs, like if you're running a bunch of eights, Everything and then you're hitting a twelve. I think you get away with it. Otherwise, I think sixteen is a sweet spot. Sweet spot. Mm. It's hard. I think that's one of the hardest things to to convey to a <laughs> to someone newer to running is that I'd like to PR a five k. Give me the speed, like kind of, <laughs> but <laughs> you're you're not going to speed your way to a nineteen fifty nine PR. You're just not going to. You need some speed for sure, but you're going to engine your way there. And that's hard to really, I'm sure better coaches can do it better, but like, it's hard to really explain to someone who just wants to go out and run a 5k PR that that doesn't mean we're getting into three interval sessions a week right now. That's just not how we're going to do it. Yeah. I mean, what was it two weeks before my first track 5k on my wedding? I ran, what did we run 17 miles the morning of my wedding or I ran you, 17 you miles. Did. I only 5K, made 15 and a half, two and a half weeks later. Loser. All right. 10k. We'll get through these quick. And then the longer stuff will get interesting. That's why people are here. But what do you guys think? 10K. Same. Yeah. 20. I don't think it changes much. I think here's where the, uh, I have this like rule of three, like minimum you should run is three times your race distance up to 10K for your long run. So like if you're a 10K runner, then maybe 18. But I think this is where that ends. And then, so I say 18. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, I got a I got a fun thing to throw in there. Subtract three miles from everything if you do it fasted. Ooh. Okay. Do you practice this? Yeah. Yeah. I you basically every morning run is fasted. You're, because ultimately no, one of the biggest drivers of endurance is, you know, the amount of mitochondria you have. And being in a more uh, glycogen depleted state, 
then you can't have like anaerobic glycolysis. You got to have, you know, an oxidative uh, uh, sort of fat burning thing going on. So your body gets that stimulus and it wants to produce more mitochondria. And that's ultimately one of the big stimulus or the big adaptations that leads to better endurance. Two questions. Are you considering fasting enough just to say from dinner until run the next morning? Yep. Or are you starting earlier in the day, the day before the fast? Nah, just skipping breakfast. I'll have a full on, a full on dinner. But like and, through the night, you know, your liver glycogen depletes and, mm-hmm. and then what is the morning? So you don't really have glucose in your bloodstream. Right. I'm on board with that. And then what is your duration? You cap that at what's the longest you'll go fasted in the morning. Uh, if I, I've got to be running by like nine 30 or 10 o'clock. To oh, do sorry. That. Duration I, distance of the run. Oh, Oh, uh, I'm trying to think I do it pretty. Sometimes I'll bring a snack. If I'm going out for 90 minutes, definitely don't need a, a snack, but if I'm going out for like three hours, I'll bring stuff out. And then once I'm like 90 minutes in, then I'll start having some stuff. And honestly, that's kind of influenced by things that I've heard from like, uh, Francois Dane and Walmsley where, you know, before, and this is the ultra side of things, you know? Um, but I do think that, that, the, the adaptations do apply to shorter distances, maybe not the 400 or the mile, but getting into like that 5k, 10k where it's like metabolism matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they would go a long time without eating. And then not until they really felt like they needed it, did they start to take it in. And that's just so they could like recover, you know, for the next day and just put in the volume yeah. to build the strength. What about quality? Would... Like if you had a morning quality session on the docket, same thing? No. Uh, if it's like, if it's sprints, I don't feel like I need, need it. Cause I'm doing them in 10 seconds. You know, it's phosphocreatine system. I'm not getting super glycolytic. Uh, but if I'm going out to do tempo, up tempo, like some marathon pace stuff. Yeah. I'm going to have, I'm going to have a breakfast. So that is a good question. I appreciate you bringing that up because yeah, it is important. I really only do fasted mornings on easy days, like non metabolically taxing mornings. And that's just for the morning. If I do a double my, my second, I'm going to fuel like crazy after the, after the first run, I'm going to have a full on, you know, uh, brunch. And then the second one, second thing of the day is just to move. So that is to the letter, exactly the way I train. And have trained probably since college. Nice. In fact, I went an hour 44, hour 45 last weekend, and I started to regret not bringing something out at like an hour 30. Uh, I've, I've out kicked my coverage here. I'm just going to be on fumes the last 15 here. <laughs> you guys, um, for me, if I don't do quality, like if I'm two hours or less and it's steady, even if it turns into a progression where I kind of run hard towards the end, I don't bring anything with me anymore. Two hours or less, I don't, I don't touch it. Are you guys in the same realm? Of course, if it was a race, I would, I'd start fueling right away, but both, both you subscribe to the same thing. If I, so I've kind of shifted in that regard. If I have any like metabolic quality planned, I'm bringing fuel. I want it because something that I don't have that you guys do is mechanical fluency at a high output. Whereas I haven't built that mechanical fluency. I can't run very fast smoothly. So if I don't bring fuel, I'm going to die and I'm not going to get as much out. Like mechanically speaking, I might get the metabolic stimulus, but I want for my sessions lately, I'm trying to maximize metabolic stimulus and mechanical Mm. stimulus. So I'm bringing fuel for all of my quality sessions. It makes sense. And then I get my fat adaptation, you know, my metabolic efficiency for my super long days or my easy, easy runs. So I'm trying to get the best of both worlds here. Interval sessions. I fuel prior tempo run, same kind of thing. Even if it's minimal, it could be like fruit snacks and a little bit of tailwind. 
And then long quality workouts, I'll bring tailwind. And then if I'm doing doubles, but like back-to-back doubles, one part run, finish on the incline trainer or rower, then I'll take down a bottle of tailwind or a muffin or something in between the workouts. Same kind of thing. Easy and longer. Bastard. Bracken, are you on the Welsh's brew snacks? Uh, Aldi right now. Okay. I'm both very pocket friendly and tasty. Yeah. I'm all about well, the Welsh's. Welch's are great. Sharks are always good. <laughs> mm. Yeah, they're like, oh, they're like 50 Banana cents and a, cup a pouch of coffee. for 80 calories instead of like, there you go, man. Yeah. I mean, gels are great and all, you know, practice your race fuel, but like, holy crap, that stuff gets expensive. If you're using like the, the high tech gels and whatnot that are three, four, five dollars a piece all the time. Yeah. yeah. I'm baby food and fruit snacks for the most part. Yeah, come on. You have that all the time. It's a daytime snack for you. <laughs> Popped a little baby food right before this. Had to top off my glycogen stars. <laughs> Kirk, should we go ahead? I know marathon? the people are still waiting to hear on the... Uh, yeah, I know they're probably waiting to get to the good stuff, which I think is marathon and up anyways for those who are intrigued by the ultra conversation. But yeah, let's go half marathon. I'll wrap that conversation up, this little game. Half marathon. Josh, same thing. 20 miles. Does this start to become a theme? 20 miles yet again? I... I think so, man. Cause I mean, also we're talking about road. So we haven't even gotten into like terrain factors right now in my head. It's like, we're talking about flat as mm-hmm. a pancake, you know, what's a, what's a length of time or sorry, a mileage that we can go for where we can get that really good metabolic stimulus and comfort of being on feet for a while without sacrificing our recovery. So there's not really a need to go beyond that. Cause then you might have diminishing returns. Cause also, especially again, like we're talking about people that might take them three hours to do that. 20 mile run instead of two hours where it's like how it's doing for Corinne and Patrick. So I don't want to extend that any further. It's just not juice isn't worth the squeeze. You know, the scale starts to starts to tip there. So, yeah, that makes sense. Now for all of this, I'm talking about pro high end runners. I think for mere mortals, I take it down to 16, 16 is my cap for most normal (laughs) quote unquote, myself included for a lot of my training blocks. People, I just don't see a whole lot of need for 16 longer than 16 because like you're saying, that's two, two and a half, three hours for a lot of people. It's just not needed. But pros, yeah, I think 5K through half marathon. I think there's a case to be made to treat half marathoners like marathoners, but I think the case is less and less because the half marathon is just more and more such a speed event. I keep them all at 18 to 20. People lump like a oh, half marathon would be in the same camp as like the marathon if you were to lump things together and they couldn't be more wrong. Half marathon lumps together all the way down to the 5K. And marathon becomes its complete own monster, right? Even though the long run for it isn't that much longer. I agree with you. 20 20 miles. There's also this rule, which I don't remember where I heard. Maybe I made it up. But really, you just take like your goal race time. Let's say your half marathon goal is an hour and a half. And then you just add a half an hour to that. And then you go run your long runs at like a steady, easy effort. Like let's say your goal... 5k is 30 minutes. Well, then you make your long steady runs an hour, right? And if your goal marathon is 230, you could go make your long steady runs three hours. For example, just take your race goal, add 30 minutes to it, and it gets you in the ballpark and it gives you the confidence to know I can run at least that amount of time on feet plus, which is like, then that's just time though. That's not distance. So it becomes more subjective. I still like that though, because it gives some, it gives everyone something pretty easy to work with. I think the common thread here is that we are not concerned with the thing that most new runners are concerned with, which is long runs are going to slow me down. 
No, long runs are going to build you up. And then your speed work is going to be more efficient because of it. It's going to, it's going to, you're going to get more return on your speed investment. Like all the way from a mile through a half marathon here, we, we're talking about, we definitely do need a long run in our schedule. Should just be peace of mind for people that you can run a 5K while training for a half marathon. You don't have to get rid of your long stuff. And I'll tell you, man, for, for ultras, for mountain ultras, because that is primarily where I'm, I'm working in. The value I see in the in the long run or the run hike is how I usually posted as uh, the values in the opportunity to to test your gear out, to test your mm-hmm. nutrition out, to just know what it's like to be out there for a long time. And honestly, most of us just friggin' love the outdoors. So it's like, let's spend a lot of time out here. So you you get to do a bunch of things that are really valuable all at once. Yeah, yeah, I mm-hmm. I couldn't couldn't agree more. And fueling, obviously, that's like. How do you practice your feeling? You run really long. That's what you do. And you fuel. And you just oh, tweak it. I was like, time. are you saying fueling or feeling? I'm like, yeah, get out there and get the feeling. That too. Yeah. Feel it, guys. <laughs> yeah. That's also, and I'll, I'll say this right now, man. I think fueling is probably the single biggest thing that changed my uh, my paradigm of like racing and race performance i used to go into races fasted i'd have like some vh juice in the morning I'm like ah oh, it's my sodium you know i'm like all oh, right i'm high i'm hydrated i got caffeine i'm ready to go uh and it worked i was like i was very like fat adapted at the time i never got hungry and so my race performances were steady but the high end wasn't there and some people would would argue against this but uh the glucose, you know, taking carbs for your racing helps enormously. You know, maybe not, you maybe don't notice this so much for like that, that 800 meters, but although there is some interesting stuff, uh, studies yeah. on like your brain recognizes glucose uh, and glycogen stores. And even if you're not quote unquote using it, your governor's raised cause it knows it's there. Like it feels safe or something. So your governor is raised, but yeah, when you're getting into actual endurance races, the fuel man. And so the ability to consume. And I mean, you guys probably listen to uh, like the Roches and, and other folks, like the, the standard amount of carbohydrate, like to be taken in during a race just keeps going up. It's like, Oh, you know, 200, 300, 380, 400, 420, bro. It just keeps going up. And so the ability to take in more and not have a stomach issue and for your body to get trained at converting that into actual energy, like you need to train that. So I like how they, I kind of enjoy the, the term food doping as they're using because it's like the lowest hanging fruit. It's, it's one of the lower hanging fruits. Uh, so that's something that's definitely changed for myself and my coaching practice is I have people practice fueling a lot more. So on mm-hmm. race day, it's not a surprise to their, their, their gut. Uh, and they just recover better typically. So spend more time moving comfortably at like a race pace, get more fluid, fluent at pulling the gel out, taking it in water, figuring out your ratios, and then having that confidence on race day that it's going to go well and having the, the body react well to all that, to yeah. both the food and having that, that power, that sustained power output. So the fueling is a big thing there for the, for those long runs. And I it's mean, been, quality runs, just, just fueling in general. Yeah. It's been fun and funny to watch the accepted parameters of fueling change since I first became aware of ultras. So 2011 was the first time I started reading about anything longer than a marathon. And people were already saying, it's a, it's not a running competition, it's an eating competition. And then all the real runners would kind of scoff like, yeah, because you're walking the whole time. 
you can only take in 300 calories per hour, man. It's, it's not even worth trying to have more. And then Walmart's well, like, I took in like 450 during Western States. And also we're like, oh, wait, we can train that? Like we can train anything else? Suddenly it was an eating competition again for the fast runners because it was a race to not run out of fuel so that you can run fast rather than just like we're eating salted potatoes at the aid station. Like, no, you're getting in as much as possible to stay topped off at all times and never decline in performance. And it's trainable. And the trainable fueling was never talked about 12 years ago. The concept of training your stomach to handle ingestion was talked about, but not improving your ability to uptake carbs and calories during high intensity exercise. It's been cool to see people realize it was almost like the athletes led the way and then science caught back up, which it's like 50, 50, which how it goes in cycles throughout history. But this one was people just started doing things that they weren't supposed to be able to do during races. Yeah. It's funny that uh, I think Tour de France has kind of been the leader with a lot of stuff or just like cycling in, in general, it's just like an older sport than uh, like ultra running. But in the Tour de France, one, the fueling thing, they were doing the same thing, just like increasing the amount of fuel they would have but something really funny was how it used to be seen as not manly if you use like a big gear like a good climbing gear and so you could have a high cadence and kind of save your legs like no you need a small gear you got to grind through it and then you would see guys start to transition to uh better gearing so they could have a faster cadence kind of save their legs people call them sissy if they would end up winning races so someone's gotta someone's gotta lead the charge and uh and take mm -hmm. the ego hit no, everybody should just grind like Jan Ulrich, the lowest gear possible. Stand by that, man. Uh, okay, quick, let's wrap it up. Let's get to the good stuff. Marathon. Then we'll get to what, you know, 50K, 100. I think it's going to get very nuanced then. Weekend Warriors, 16. Mortals, 20. Pros, whatever you can handle and recover from. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't want to tangent but i wonder if you guys think that for something like the marathon the road marathon is it more valuable to do a longer single or do slightly uh slightly less like in back-to-back -back long runs like instead of a, a 25 30 would you do or 25 or 30 miler would you do like a uh a 2018 a 22 18 <clears throat> something like that like saturday sunday have fallen less in love with back-to-backs for a lot of people, uh, I guess in a vacuum, I really like it. I think the last preparing for the last six to eight of a marathon, any way that gets you there is valuable. For some people, I think it's doing a tempo one day and following it up with a a twenty miler the next. And I think for some people, it's doing a fifteen miler in the morning and you have to run a ten k tempo that evening, no matter how you feel. I think for some people, it's back to back. I guess I don't have a rule on it other than a belief that whatever gets us ready for the last six is a hundred percent worth doing as long as we can stay healthy. Yeah. That's I really part, like staying the, healthy. Uh, I really like the Friday quality putting in 10 to 14 miles of something and then just slogging on tired legs for 20 to 22 the next day. I think that's very, very effective. If you look at um, like a previous guest of ours, Tyler German, we've had him on twice and he's, run 213 a couple of times and he's really hitting it hard. I've seen him go 30 multiple occasions, just the 30 mile long run on the weekend. He's got marathons. He's over simulating. I think a lot of those guys go further than marathon distance in training at the pro level. Almost all of them, don't they? Slightly over. Yeah. And I, then if they, in, if, if they include quality, they may still go 22, but do five by five K 
in the middle, which is kind of astounding, but it's true. And they'll still get to 22, but there's legit marathon and even sometimes faster than marathon pacing for a good majority of that 22, which is the very top level of what guys are doing, which is wild if you ask me. And I think you touched upon the yeah. real differentiator here. It's for a long time, it was just a rule. We don't go past 22 in a marathon or we, we, whatever it's going to be. But I think the danger is running 20 at marathon pace or marathon plus 10. Or mm -hmm. It's the, the people that get in trouble, leave their race in a long, sustained, grind yourself mm -hmm. to death run. Running 30 is not an issue if you can handle running 30. Running 20 with 20 miles of quality is the issue. Running 18 miles of quality for a lot of people is great. You know, Charlie Lawrence was doing 30 mile days because he had 12 miles of quality in there, plus warm up, plus cool down, plus a five mile in the evening. The people that seem to get in the most trouble are the people who run 18 to 22 at marathon pace several times throughout. Mm -hmm. They just tend not to show up right. That's my opinion, though. A lot of pro groups still do it. Yeah, I think you, uh, I think you guys said it before. It's like, don't leave it in training. I don't know what your phrase was behind it, but it's like basically racing like your big workout. Like, yeah, if you're getting it for a marathon, you do, do doing 20 at marathon pace. That would be a mistake. Save it for the marathon. Have you guys ever made that? Like, was that a personally made mistake that you learned or was something you observed with others or learned from others? I left little big, big hill workouts too close to a race and showed up in worse condition because I had to recover too much afterwards. And then something didn't come around and I couldn't get back to what I wanted, but watched multiple marathoners PR in training. Oh, I just ran 215 and I... I, I chilled the last four miles like, oh man, I hope those first 22 didn't. And then they run slower on race day or whatever. It's just so many people mm -hmm. get so fit that they can access. That's the thing about marathon pace. If you get really good at it, you can access it pretty frequently and it's not mm -hmm. that costly, but then you're over the line right before you realize it. And now like you can't, you've done like cellular damage. You have some nervous system damage and, uh, it's just, you see too many guys leave it in training. Are those, I wonder if all of those guys are self-coached or if they are coached and don't listen, or if they are coached by someone that didn't understand them well enough yet. Probably yeah. all of the above. I mean, Tyler German, going back to him, said he left his, one of his last marathons, he ran 216 or 18. He was disappointed. And they did 90 minutes of three minutes on, two minutes float three weeks out, you know, they went 22 total miles and he averaged like 509 pace for 90 minutes, three weeks out. And then he went three weeks later to access his race mm -hmm. and it fell apart when you think it would 20 miles in or 22 miles in. The tricky thing about the marathon is marathon pace isn't hard if you're well-trained. In fact, marathon pace feels very comfortable. And so as ego strokes, we go and mar true marathoners often can find themselves in the trap of just like, I'm just going to go tempo at my marathon pace. or I'm going to sneak in some extra miles because it's like, feels really good. Actually. It's like that feeling where you run fast, but you're still in control. Right. So you're like, this is all day, baby. And they get, you get stuck in that over and over and over again. And pretty soon you've, you've used that card too many times and it's just gone on race day. But really, if you're well-tuned marathon pace should be, once you almost say conversational, the first half, like really, if you're ready for it, you might be able to converse with your buddy at marathon pace 
until yeah. you can't. So I think it's a trap that people can fall into. Um, all right, let's get to the good stuff now. 50K, does anything change? And let's include, this is where I start to forget about distance and I suddenly my brain goes to time all of a sudden. It's like, okay, now that we're at 50K and above, like we forget about distance and now we talk about time and maybe I'm alone here, but let's go 50K. And now most 50Ks aren't on roads, right? Like let's let's appease the trail crowd and say like, okay, now there's some varied terrain involved, right? Which typically is the case. You don't see very many 50K and up road races, at least accessibility wise. So what do you think now on that 50K? Yeah, it's funny that you said time because my brain immediately went to uh, from road to trail. So in a way, yeah, there's definitely a switch Mine too, that, yeah. that kind of happened there. Yeah, even though there are a half marathon and marathon trail races, which are all friggin' awesome, you know. But uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, Bracken, you first. Yeah, so this is where I start to uh, split the training most often with people. I, I, I find myself alternating weekends or weeks where one week we're treating it like it's a road marathon and we're hitting our mileage. No matter what it takes us, we're addressing the, the distance concern of the race. And on the alternating weeks or every three or whatever, depending on the athlete's speed, we're addressing time domain. This is a two-hour run. Fill it as you can. Where the other week's like we're hitting 22, no matter how long it takes you. Uh, I, I don't think most people can handle doing that every week. It's just so much time, but... I start to split it more towards the mountain and the ultra approach of time on feet rather than distance every other week. But it, to me, it's, it's marathon training. It's only six miles longer, but still a speed event until you have a crazy amount of vert. So I alternate my longer run style for that. So I'm still going to say the same distance that 16 to 20 for most people as long as you want to go for the pros without breaking down, but alternating time domain versus mileage domain. Hmm. I blend them. So oftentimes the client will see like four miles or, or sorry, four hours or 18 miles, whichever comes first. Hmm. And I'll say, you know, aim for like three hmm. to five K of elevation gain. Cause I, you know, like if you're on the cat skills, if you're averaging like four miles an hour, that's really good. Whereas somewhere else, like five miles an hour is a breeze, you know? So I can't really account mm-hmm. for all of the terrain factors. I can ask them, but at the end of the day, like how well did they describe it to me and how well do they actually move like fluidly through it? So I give them those two caps and whichever one comes first. That makes sense. I will say that my caveat is that whenever possible, I try to have a GPS file of where they're going to run. Like I'm hitting Green Mountain in Boulder for my long run. I'm going to hit that that six mile loop three times. All right, we're we're just going to finish. That's going to be long, but it's not going to be crazy. Versus, I'm doing the incline all the entire time. All right, we're putting a time cap on you. You're not trying to hit 20 miles today. That kind of thing. But you're right. Sometimes you just can't account for terrain whatsoever. That that so said, said, if I sorry, if they're if they are doing. Like a, uh, yeah, so for a 50K, if it is beastly, like say it's a 50K, I did a 50K this past summer with like 19,000 feet of gain, you know? So then it's, then we're talking about vert, you know, we're like, I want you to go out today and get 7,000 feet of vert. I don't care how long it takes. Your body, your, your legs are going to know that amount of downhill. Yeah. That's smart. You said four hours. Did you just, was that random or was that a thought out four hours? Is that something you use? So I like four hours. Usually, I mean, usually just like the four hours and, you know, 18 miles, that means you're averaging a little over four miles per hour, which I feel like for a lot of races and people that I've worked with the level they're at, that's, that's kind of like their, their race pace, you know, uh, or, or close to it. And so since it's shorter, 
they're able to operate at close to race pace and get familiar with that. But also four hours is just a nice amount of time to experience your gear and the nutrition. Again, like that's a huge part of your success completing some of these longer races. It's like, can your stomach handle the nutrition? Are you paying attention to your splits? It's like, I know you're in the middle of a one hour long climb and you got your head down, you're grinding, but like you need to remember and get used to pulling that bottle out every 15 minutes and having a sip of water. So, and doing that over time and building that habit. It's like, it's like duration, you know, just like, like with any skill, like that's the skill aspect of it. You need to spend time practicing your skill. So four hours is typically a nice time where it's like, you're going to get a good physical stimulus from it, but you're also going to get to practice all of your gear and build that competence and confidence in using it. So I like four hours. So you will often prescribe like four hours, like four hours on your race terrain, basically go nuts, nice and steady, practice everything. Yeah. Well, I'll still give, I'll still give that other cap. I'll say, you know, I'll still do the four hours or this mileage. Yeah. I'll still do that because if they, I don't want them to be out there for, uh, uh, what's it called? I don't want them to do, you know, 30 miles. Right. So I'll give them that, that second cap. So it's got one or the other, you know, if they're out there for three, they do that 18 miles in three hours. Cool. Three hours is still a long, long time. And they got all that physical stimulus from covering the miles. You know, they took basically the same amount of steps. So that's why I like those double, yeah, uh, those double caps there. I think Bracken and, and I were a little more aligned just based on maybe our backgrounds. I don't know. Um, I cap at three hours. I don't know if you put a cap bracket. I have prescribed a few longer at times, but three hours and then every other week, yeah, it's more, it's like every other week hit three and every other week go hit duration with quality is actually my philosophy. I'd rather you go and alternate weekends than go and run three hours every weekend, every weekend, every weekend. I'd rather go back and forth. Um, and then 50K is where I start to implement um the split double. I don't know if you guys are into that, but it's just a more condensed version of like a Friday quality Saturday long run. Uh, my tenured 50k athletes are all doing a quality session on, in the morning. It can be 70 to 90 minutes where you may do threshold intervals and then I give them three hours or so and then they go out and they hit a three hour long run on the race terrain fatigued at survival effort, so to speak. And, uh, that seems to be really dang effective, but that's not every week. That's every, that's every four weeks. They do one of those. And I found that to be a really big staple. Then that can carry you all the way up to the next step, which is like a hundred K in my opinion. Um, is that let's make your entire tired legs, go give a shit about your metrics in the morning and then go like kind of suck it up in the afternoon. That seems to do well for a lot of the athletes I coach. That's, that's nice. like a Canova day. That's special block. You know what, too? They all look forward to it. They're a bunch of psychopaths. They like can't wait for their Saturday to be totally ruined by this. It's really bizarre. <laughs> you know, I, my belief is that if I could only bring one thing to the table, a few really good long runs <clears throat> or a bunch of two to three hour <clears throat> runs, I choose the two to three hour run. And there were times where I believed more in that. But then I also have had an ultra that I, a six hour ultra that I prepped for twice. And the first time I did four hours on a ski hill and the second time I did three and a half. And there was a significant difference in my level of preparation that happened in the final 30 minutes of that four hour run that I didn't get them three and a half. It, it, like you said, Joshua, it, it gets you to a place that is much more race specific to the back end of a race than just three or three and a half does. Like, there's something from three and a half to four where it starts getting very real 
And I think that that is very important for people to hit at least one time in a block. Now, obviously, the more time they spend racing on course, the less they need that. But that second time I did three and a half and I was like, I feel good. I've started to get tired. I know what I need to know. But that extra 30 minutes told me more last time than not having it this time told me. And I regretted not going four. So I like to spam two, two and a half hour runs. But I think from time to time, more and more now, I think it's needed to get a little longer and learn. I think that was an important thing that you just said. And and Kirk, you did too, which was you don't do them all the time. You do them, maybe you throw them in every like mm-hmm. four weeks or it's or it's in like the final several weeks before the race. It's not like jump to these and do them every week. Don't, <laughs> you know, unless you're like Zach Miller. Mm. All right. But, uh, but yeah, a little bit of a variation, like spend the time out there just to get used to being out there for a long time, practice nutrition. And then guess what? I mean, we can also throw some chaos in there, to, which makes things difficult in a different way. You don't, might not be out there for as long, but the chaos of say, I like to give people what I call a, a freedom run. And it's basically like what I would refer to as like a real fart lick. It's not structured. It is legitimate speed play. Like go hit the terrain as it calls to you. You know, I'll give them like some general recommendations. Do like anywhere from a three minute to a one hour push, you know, don't end feeling drained, but have fun out there today. Send it on the downhills, do all that. And so now they're having fun. They're engaging with the terrain. I get to learn about them on the terrain. They get to learn about themselves on the terrain and where they like to make a move or where they do well. And then they still have to keep track of all the nutritional stuff while their mm-hmm. mind's playing with like, oh, I'm going to push here. I'm going to go right here. So that's a really fun one. And that one I'll probably cap at two and a half, three hours and do that once every four weeks. I like that. My version of that, we either call it uppers or downers or no uphill left behind or no downhill left behind. With the, It's like just it. an easy aerobic run. You are to run easy on the flats, on the downhills, on the rollers, but every climb you have to work with purpose. And I think people learn a lot about themselves in analyzing how their first climb went to their last climb when they thought they were working with sustainable purpose. And they didn't even work the downhills or the flats. And what happens to your climbing throughout your three hours? Or same thing with downhills. You got to run the uphills easy. You got to stay the flats easy. Run the downhills with real purpose. And let's see, A, what happens to your second half of the run downhills, but B, what are you starting to have to compensate for on the flats and the uphills because of what you've done on the downhills? And I think that helps teach that sustainable pacing, not what's going to work now or two hours from now, but in the back half, that back third, have I done something dumb or have I not? I like that. I like uppers just because I love caffeine and energy. So I'll probably steal that workout just for that. <laughs> Do it. Just for the name. <laughs> Does anything Sweet. change so, then for you guys doubling it all the way up to 100K then? Uh, on my end, the same principles actually apply, except maybe go four, maybe at that point, and then more volume throughout the week. Then it's a must for me. It's like... Your recovery run might be 80 minutes on Monday now and your Thursday midweek long run might be 90 and you're like, it's for me, the only change, the biggest change is layering in more, but not really changing those big weekends as much. What about you guys? I agree with that hundred percent. Yeah. If you actually want to perform really well, you just got to ramp up the numbers throughout the, throughout the whole week, double at least a few days, if not all the time, if you can handle it. Yeah. Yeah. I think you get longer than 50 miles and it's like more is better. Until you break, obviously. But this is where I take the choice out of people's hands. Up until 50K, sometimes 50 mile, like how much muscular endurance work we're going to do, how much sled work, how much lunging, how much like stairs. We're going to do as much as you want to do to replace your volume. 
Now, once we get past eight hours on course or so, it gets non-negotiable. Even if you can run 100-mile weeks, we are just, we're, it's mandatory muscular endurance because you're going to get to a point on the race where that's the only thing that's going to keep you able to run is how strong your structure is. So that's probably my biggest change once it gets towards double-digit hours is we have to spend a lot of time in the gym for me. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's um, interesting because right with the muscular endurance, like you can do uh, a, a 60 minute or a 90 minute strength session and instead of running 10 more miles, but the value you got out of that is it's like, it gives you this, this durability and fitness quality of as, as if you had run a healthy, like 25 or 30 miles more. Yeah. And, and more and more, I'm a believer in it more and more. Every time, every block, Every one of my own races, every one of my athletes, I just, I lean into it more. I, I learn to trust it more. Just had this conversation with somebody this week and it's like almost like counterintuitive thinking. You think like the shorter the race is, the more explosive I need to be and the more power I need to be able to generate. So it would make sense to really hit the strength work if I'm a miler or a 5k or because speed and power and strength. And I'm like, honestly, those guys probably need to do less. Those guys absolutely need to do less if any strength work because they're out there for four minutes compared to what you're doing like it's totally backwards by common school of thought the longer you are like that strength base saves you eventually and allows you to take less damage and survive in the back end but i think most common line of thought is the opposite of what how we coach i coach the same way bracken and i run to the same philosophy and josh you're a big strength guy so obviously you believe it but I, i'm I wouldn't be surprised if that was almost counterintuitive for most people. And plus, then you have to think like all that time on feet is so catabolic. It breaks you down, breaks you down, breaks you down. The more mileage you run, the more you need the polar opposite opposing stimulus of cat or anabolic with the strength, like just so you stay structurally sound. So like, it's just, I don't know. I don't think a lot of people think that way. Yeah, that's interesting. I suppose as a, uh, someone that does shorter distances, yeah, they definitely don't need the volume. I mean, like Yuri Verkashansky, uh, how to say his last name, the Russian, he still had his 1,500-meter uh, uh, to 10,000-meter guys doing uh, strength endurance, like Jim's specific strength endurance. But I'm not actually sure is when he uh, like cut that off because he did more like block periodization. He didn't carry it throughout the, the whole thing. But yeah, I definitely agree because this is the whole durability piece. That's the thing. And like uh, kind of emulating the effect of more miles without the abuse and you get the strength to handle more miles and not take on the same abuse. It's awesome. Yeah. And you can, you can run a mile or an 800 off pure efficiency and beautiful stride. Like strength training can help, but the peep, like the world record milers are pretty split down the middle, whether they strength trained or not. Like some of them are just beautiful runners and they don't do anything. And then you got Alan Webb who lived on circuits and plyo and, and weight room. And like they all ran 347. <laughs> doesn't matter. It does individually, but globally, it doesn't really matter. But you can't just rhythm run a 24 hour race with 24,000 feet of vert. You can't just be efficient. Like you have to crumble. And what's waiting for you when your stride leaves you? Like to me, it's like that's. That's all the second half is, is how much of your stride can you force back in line with your strength work? How much of that muscular endurance can take over for like, I'm not a prancing toe runner anymore. Like, what do I do? Like, that's fine. Like, your hips, they got you. But a, yeah, a, a, also like a flouncy little runner doesn't have that backup. 
Yeah, definitely important to note that like when it comes to ultras, even the I mean the elite of the elite will run seven minute mile and sometimes sub seven, you know, for a course like Western States hundred miler. But mm-hmm. the but still like a strong runner, uh, even on that course, or like a slightly less runnable course, they might be averaging eight nine minute miles. At, you know, it's like well below a lot of their VT1. It's easy. So, so much more of your running is at race pace. You can handle more volume. You don't need as much quality. Yeah. So, that's an important thing to remember. Jo- Josh, why don't you tell uh, there'll be probably you know, a couple dozen listeners of ours who uh, avoid leg work like the plague because it hurts their legs for their running and it takes away. And it's not, it clearly makes my running worse. And I just hate it and I'm not gonna, and I don't wanna. And, blah, right? We got a lot of those out there. I know you get afraid to admit it, but a lot of you listen and avoid the legs because it'll take away from your running. Idiots. That's what I think. Why don't you talk to them? Tell them why they should still do strength work. I'm gonna Lower give body. those people. I'm going to give those people two options, recommendations, all right? One is suck it up, get into it, let it compromise your running, probably your volume, and how good it feels, you know, for some weeks. How many weeks? A few, several, whatever. I mean, if you're doing block training, if you're periodizing, then you start this early season. You build this quality when the volume of running and the quality of that running doesn't matter as much. And then when it comes time to do that quality running and more running, you're more adapted to that strength work. And you might even be able to back off it a little bit because you've now done the majority of the work and you can maintain it with less. The other option is do it and just like start a little bit lighter. That way it doesn't compromise you as badly and just build up a little bit over the weeks so you don't get smashed and you need to help getting off the toilet you know week one yeah something is better than nothing and you don't need to be a hero out of the gates that's exactly right don't be and i think we had a strength training for runners episode back in a while back and it was more like yeah we can split hairs and it's fun to do that but like do we need to like something literally is better than nothing whether you're doing heavy sets of five or you're doing circuits of 20 rep plyos like both are going to push you the right direction, right? So start with something that maybe seems a little less intimidating. Yeah. I would say half of the athletes I work with, our initial strength training is the easy strength program by Dan John, simply because they do not want to interrupt their running. And I want to plant the seeds for strength work. And if you're not doing any strength work, even 50% of max work, two by five, five times per week, is going to move the needle pretty significantly and it plants the seed for what comes next. And by the end of this, you've already started playing around with it. You're a runner. You care about pace. You care about volume. It's going to follow you into the weight room. Are you either of you familiar with the easy strength approach by Dan John? No, I just put a note Roughly. in to check it out later. Okay. It's basically 50 to 60% of your one rep max for two by five, a push, a pull, a hinge, um, uh, and then a loaded carry, basically nothing. It's like a warm up, but you do it. You're supposed to do it as many times per week as possible, like five, six times a week for a month. Okay. Grease the groove status, grease the groove style. But what ends up happening because you're already an athlete is that by week three, you're playing around with it. You're adding a little bit of weight. You're adding a different accessory. You're thinking down the road, what could I start doing with this? And pretty soon they're like, you know what? Can we drop a time or two and start raising some weight up? And we're like, hey, look what we're doing now. We're lifting weights. 
Like early on, those reps are really good for your movement patterns and they're already changing you a little bit, but it's a gateway drug to real training. Like you can't <laughs> go wrong early on other than going way too hard with no form and just like trying to ego lift and setting yourself back. Other than that, anything is better than nothing and it's going to lead to wanting to get better at it and do more. Nice. I like that. I do that for Josh, what body. is your weekly strength routine? <laughs> What's your strength routine look like? I, uh, let's see, right now I'm doing, I gotta, I want to give you as much detail as possible. I don't have my program up in front of me, but I, uh, on say I count sprints as strength. So I'm doing like sprints, um, on a Tuesday and then muscular endurance on Wednesday. So that's picking, you know, four movements, trying to reduce the novelty. Um, if a machine's taken, you know, then I'll try to go something else similar uh, you know, like instead of having the Olympic bar on my back for my, my lunges, I'll hold dumbbells on my side. It's like, all right, no big deal. But, uh, but muscular endurance on Wednesday. And then I'm now doing a, uh, I'm going to what the does that look like more specifically like movements, rep counts, like give us some dirt. Yeah. Everything, everything's five by eight to 12. You know, if I'll, I'll shoot for, uh, eight on the lunges. I've just really enjoyed that, that rep range. So five by eight on each leg, you know, so that's a total of 10 walking or step sets. back, uh, step back. So, and that's actually kind of fun. I've kind of adjusted over time instead of upping the weight recently, I've just been like not resting at the top and lifting really a lot faster. So I'm not actually like picking my back leg up and putting it back next to my other. It's almost more like a, I'm almost doing like a shrimp squat, you know, like a single mm -hmm. leg squat on the front now. But anyways, those, those lunges, and then I'm getting on the, something that I did as a modifier because the box was taken to do my box step-ups, my single leg box step-ups for five by 10. I went over to the leg press machine. I was like, that was actually pretty cool. Having like my hips locked up against that seat and pushing against that, uh, that plate there. It was just, uh, I was actually able to move like more explosively without weight going everywhere. Uh, so I might, might keep that going. And then, uh, and then kettlebell swings. And then I went over to, I hate to say it, I went over to the glute machine. I was doing kickbacks. All oh, right. Glutes and the. I'm proud of it, but I. Yeah, those are great. I'm into it, man. My hips feel like more uh, well rounded today in like some weird way. It's just like a really nice equal soreness around the hips, around the legs. And also, the day after I went for a run, it felt so explosive, which was weird. Usually I'm uh, a little drained the day after a muscular endurance, but it's like, all right, maybe I. Maybe I nailed it. So we'll see. We'll see. But so there's the muscular endurance, you know, four moves, you know, five times, eight to 12. And then for upper body, I'll do like this whole rotator cuff warm up thing. You guys know I've torn my shoulder out and you know how to race. Uh, so that's doing good, but I still got to warm that up well. And I'm doing, I'll start out with one day I'll do high pulls. So it's like a, it's like going into a muscle up, but you don't actually go over the bar. It's more like you're, you're like doing an explosive pull up and flying backwards and it really gets the lats. Uh, pretty, pretty incredibly. And it's super duper explosive. And then I'll do one arm pull-ups. I'll do like 12 total reps. I'll, I'll do doubles on one side until I can't do doubles. And then I'll go to singles for the one arm pull-ups. And then I'll go and do hammer curls or isometric hammer curls for, which actually has an awesome translation, I think to lock offs, you know, like once your back's totally blown out, like work the form and the bicep moving mm -hmm. on to, uh, to mm -hmm. dumbbell work. So so doing pull-ups, doing curls, some isometrics, some heavy stuff. And then I basically call You can do single arm. You can do two single arm consecutive pull-ups in a row. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then I'll move to singles. Full extension on the bottom and all. That's impressive. Yeah, well, I'll get to it if I, if I kip. I, I can't do, like, clean, you know, like, hollow hang status uh, one-arms. Or I can do it for Oof. one rep, but I have to – I got to do a kip for the second. It's very impressive. Just want to say that. That's Thanks, not man. easy. Most cannot do that. Or, have you ever done one-arm pull-up Yeah, but I was a gymnast for 10 years. So there was a time in Were my you? life where – Yeah. Holy yeah, from shit. 2 to 12. <laughs> Almost ready for the Olympics. That's Three crazy. 13, like, what maybe? is a two-year-old – what is, yeah, like what does it look like when you're two? It starts with the mom and me classes and the toddler classes, and then you progress up to, uh, I think it was called Mighty Mites, and then Tough Guy classes, and that, there's a name for each one. And then by six or five, I was competing, and I competed five through 12 or 13. Oh, my God. It's adorable. Awesome. Well, most people it. that do one-arm pull-ups, or you'll see like a video of somebody doing them, you know, they start in just a slight bent arm position. Their bar is either rotating or in a neutral position. For me, I could only do them in a neutral bar hold, right, instead of like overhand or underhand. Um, but they start, their arms just slightly bent, and there's just a little calf raise, like boom, to bump them into that one arm, right? That's very impressive nonetheless, right? That is very difficult. I am not foo-fooing that. Sure. That's mostly what I had done. <laughs> but then there's like I'm hanging from the bar, my there's nothing under my feet anymore, and then actually getting up and locking it off. They might as well be different exercises. And so He's the I don't know if you have a thought first. on that or that scap shrug the latch first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all the way. Dude, yeah. Coming just... out of that lock off is coming out of that lock off is super tough. There's definitely mm-hmm. no doubt about that. You don't have issues with your shoulder on that. Uh, that that's a uh, compromise side of yours. We'll call it. Surprisingly, I don't. Um, I've been mm-hmm. a little timid with laches. I won't do a one arm lache anymore. I've been practicing two arm. Uh, but yeah, I've done so much shoulder work, man. Like after I got that puppy torn out, I went, took the rehab really seriously and then carried it out myself and just have been like so conscious about improving like my mid back muscles and wrote like rotator cuff strength. Cause I feel like for the longest time I was just super dominant with like my lats and biceps. I didn't actually have really good integrity in the rest of my mm-hmm. rotator cuff complex. So, so yeah, shit's good. It's been Two good things. So yeah. First the, of all. That was one What's of the up? more imp- impressive race performances I've ever watched. Every time I watch it, I, I'm like cringing watching you. Like, oh my goodness, is he going to? Oh, yes. Oh. And now every time I watch anyone swing and release through monkey bars, like I, Lars just did it in a race I watched today. I was like, oh, I, I get this little like cringe yeah. every time I see people do it now. You've affected me long term. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm a little scarred. What Bracken's referring yeah, to it. People doing it. It freaks me out. Yeah. What Bracken's referring to is the North American champs, Spartan North American champs, Lake Tahoe, twenty twenty one. One. I don't mm-hmm. even remember. Twenty one. And uh, what he's speaking of is Joshua's uh, shoulder comes out of socket maybe twice during the race, and he's there in agony, and his arm is hanging. And it's just, and he pops that sucker back in place like a boss and keeps going and they catch it all on camera and you were having a great race. You were in third place on the heels of some greats like Atkins. And so anyways, you should go back and watch that Spartans live broadcast. It's still out there. 2021 (laughs) Spartan North American champs. You had, you, that was your coming out party, Josh, man. At least I was known for something. Yeah. That was actually, uh, 
I'm not going to lament about it too much, but dude, that race was like just getting started. I had the whole plan was controlled on the up. And then after the sandbag, that was the first downhill and I was going to smash. And that's when I was going to turn it on. And what do I do? I get out of the sandbag 200 meters later is that monkey ball where my shoulder comes out. It took me, I don't know, 30, 40 seconds to get it back in. And then the whole downhill, my shoulder was compromised because it just hurt like the jolting, you know? Uh, and my mind was like half out of it. I'm like, what do I do? Do I stop? Do I like continue to attack? So shit, dude, that race was going to be it, man. But uh, yeah, at least I got some video footage, right? <laughs> Every time I watch it, I think and this has to be his like biggest what if. He was just poised for such because you were obviously about to back half race it. It was so clear and it was just taken from you and you still ran well. And you like one arm rope climb and got like, you try to limp this. It was just all, it was all gritty. Thanks man. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, yeah. No hard feelings about it, but, uh, so yeah, yeah. Shoulders doing great now. Couldn't be happier uh, about that. But, uh, to finish the question about the, like the strength routine, it's muscular endurance. It's two pull-up sessions a week. One focus on one arm, which for me is max. Instead of doing weighted pull-ups anymore for both arms, I'm just doing one arms. I'm just getting really competent at one arms, adding in some lock-offs there. And then uh, now I'm doing endurance sessions just because the Saudi Arabia Tough Mudder is coming up and I just need to get a lot of volume. So I'm doing huge volume pull-ups, just like AMRAP sets, uh, EMOMs, just plain Will you old, grease the groove with grip as you get closer? Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, I have the, uh, the hangboard you know, hanging on the outside of the bus. So I'll be hanging on that a bit, but I just got a, I got a membership to a local rock gym. So I'm going to be spending a lot of time on there because not only is that going to give me that upper body, like volume, but it'll give me that movement competence and build some calluses on the hands, which is not to be underestimated. Those calluses to go far. This is a total side conversation, total side conversation, but I haven't looked into the details too much where Where's the money coming from for this Saudi Arabia event? So basically, they're offering how much money? Oh, you're, nobody <laughs> knows. Money, it's a great mystery. Don't know. <laughs> it's just, just nobody knows, but this money's guaranteed. I mean, it's got every good athlete coming for what a hundred thousand dollars prizes or a million. Right? It's ridiculous. Hmm. I trust that we'll get it. I feel like I feel like we you get are. paid like immediately. Yeah, yeah. The, the the money over there is crazy, and the whole. Like UAE Saudi area is very, very high on fitness right now. And the crown, like the crown prince of Dubai started X Dubai, which is a fitness company. And then they started this whole app for their, all their citizens where they get paid for exercising daily. Like they're, they're very big into it and they have an obscene amount of oil money. It's just outrageous. Like, a, they love fitness and B, they're good for it. <laughs> You're not going to wait on your Back money. so worldly, you know, stuff. Does that have your very, full attention right now, that event? Yes. Yes, it has 100% of my my attention. I'm training specifically, totally specifically for it. What's the date? February 24th, right? Same day as right. Jacksonville. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. So you're, when this, you're six weeks out, seven weeks out. You should be entering some sort of overreaching phase, we'll call it the pinnacle of everything i'm very curious this is a 24-hour race there's a shitload of money Not 24, and competition right? showing up what is it eight hours eight eight hours um, what is your training Atkins says it's his favorite distance that's my favorite distance man or time what does training go. look like let's walk us through a let's walk us through a snapshot of the week then how it looks as let's step back a little bit and look at it oh man do my competitors listen to this Dude. give them no, i'll give you a little bit i'll give you a little bit but actually 
<laughs> I'm doing 160 <laughs> miles a week, you know, basically I'll race pace. Now I, so it looks pretty different and I'm having a really good time. I had a great time putting it together and I'm already having a great time executing it because it is a little different than what I've done uh, previous. So I got like a gnarly cough. Like I said, you know, I had like six weeks off running. And that kind of messed up my off season a little bit. I got the strength in, but I wasn't getting in like base mileage again. So I'm not where I really wanted to be with my running mileage. So I'm not into overreaching and I'm not really going mm. to overreach. What I'm going to do this time around is I'm going to build right up into it. I'm not going to overshoot and I don't have time to overshoot and recover, you know? Mm. So I'm going to build, build, build and try and get there like 1% under overreaching and, uh, and, and yeah, have that be, have that be that mega workout, have that be that I'm going to treat it like it is just the next big workout. You know what I mean? Mm. I am a big so, fan what, of that approach for ultra work. Big fan. How'd you come about that? Like what are, how'd you realize you like that? Personally, I just had too many races where I raced better in the first two or three stages of training if you wanted to periodize it. And then as I got to the point where I was going to hit my biggest workout and then start bringing it down, that ended my run of high performance, it felt like. And then ultra training, there were my first two, I just felt best four weeks out. I built, I built, I built, I built, I tested, I built, I built, I tested, I backed off, tried things, and both of my tests went better than race day. And so for the next one, I just <laughs> cut it, four to six weeks short and just said that last test isn't there anymore. It's just race day. And I just felt like I arrived with momentum. Like I'm in my rhythm. I know exactly what I can do. And maybe there was some pressure taken off. And I also really hate tapering and peaking like for track. I loved it. It was a lot of fun, reduce volume, rip intervals. It made sense. I think it's difficult to find your best way of peaking the longer the distance goes on because there's so much trial and error that goes into it, but there's only so many races pr throughout a year to try to get it right for like, I think you can go three years before figuring it out. Yeah. And I, you know, I've been figuring it out too, because people do respond a little bit differently to things. So when I actually did that race in Tahoe, where I, I lost my arm, I trained right into that. I put together seven six or seven 70 75 mile weeks and then i just hit that like a workout i, just, I was like eh, you know i want to do good here but uh i don't really want to like i had never done 70 mile weeks before so i wasn't trying to like go away or like overshoot it and then taper i'm like i'm just gonna hold this this feels great phenomenal race i'm like maybe i should try that again <laughs> and the fact that i just had that whole six week thing happen beforehand I'm like okay this is i think this is the next opportunity for for me to do that so gonna gonna get up around like 60 70 miles i don't know if i'm gonna do a lot more than that but a lot more is gonna be race pace so i'm kind of taking that john alvin approach this time through i mean we're talking about eight hours i the terrain is gonna be a lot of packed stuff so maybe the pace ends up being 640 715 745 i don't i don't think it's gonna be much slower than that unless we hit soft sand in which case it's probably gonna be like a lot slower but luckily we got a bunch of snow here. So that'll kind of prep my legs for that. I feel like, but yeah, lots of math, man. I'm going back to my roots doing shitload of math, which for me up here right now is, you know, it's like seven, it's like seven. And you know, in a couple of weeks, as I continue to adapt to the altitude and get some miles under me, it's going to be 645. So mm -hmm. just make that feel as comfortable as could possibly be. And I am going to take on more cross training. 
I am so happy to have an air bike available. Just do a shitload of work on that and take zero abuse. So I really want to increase what I'm like calling like, no work capacity. It's like, I want my muscles to be used to doing a lot of work and I want my heart to be used to doing a lot of work. And I want to produce all that lactate globally. I want my arms to be good at soaking it up. So high volume pull-ups, lots of uh, uh, cross training and 60 to 70 miles at math. That's the, that's the 10,000 foot view. You dosing some speed. Thank you for asking. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so that was a 10,000 foot view. The, the little bit more detail in there is I am definitely gonna be doing like mechanical threshold. So, which is a, a little faster than my, my lactate threshold. So I'm just going to shorten up the reps so I don't produce too much lactate, right? That's the idea. I'm on the meter, but, but yeah, doing like, doing like 800s at five, 545, you know, a bunch of that kind of stuff. And then I am going to be doing sprints. You know, I, Brack, I sent you that post just talking about like adaptations, how long they're lasting. And I've gained so much from doing 200s over the past several weeks. I think that's the only thing that redeemed to that mile that I, I ran. Like aerobically, I wasn't really there, but the speed was there. So I just want to have that like power reserve <laughs> and keep that up there and see how that can contribute to my mechanical fluency. So, so I did yeah, some twos yesterday. How do you execute your 200s? I do them. I'm doing them every or, uh, as an E2 mom, just so it's like easy to uh, pay attention to. And I'll ease into them. I'll treat it like I'm an old man. You know, I'll start out with like some 36 and then just take the seconds down every rep until I'm at a spot where I'm like, this feels very fast, but I have control. And that might be like 31, 32, not blitzing, but I mean, shit, it's a hell of a lot faster than I need to run anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And I'll do, oh, and I'll do 8 to 12. 12, 8 to 12. E2 mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's not I as fast as I could I go. Like, I could blast a um, 27. Yeah. I think there's a lot of power, uh, especially the more tenured you get to like showing up at like a long endurance race and not knowing, meaning like you didn't give yourself the opportunity to prove your yourself, your worth in training leading up. Like you're pretty sure it's going to come together and this is going to be my experimental day, race day, like Bracken's talking about. But if you believe in your methodology and your ability, like the whole, don't leave it in training, like save it for race day. You're just choosing for race day to be your, one in quotes, last big training day. And usually that works out like really, really dang well. Anytime I've entered something and been like, I don't know, I haven't done this recently. I'm like, yeah, of course it's going to work because you're available. Like, duh. Yeah, you're available. That's all that really matters. Show up available. And when you blow your load twice in training to prove to yourself you're ready, well, it's that's exactly it. It's already been blown. I think people are very successful that way in general, myself included. Bracken, I don't know if you've... Like when you did the Tennessee mile back in November, a couple of years ago, if that was your approach, but I believe it was. Yeah. Gen- generally it. speaking. And not through it. That's it went well, but I, I, and I want to be clear. I'm not deep. against peaking. I'm not against tapering. Just that the peak and the taper are only as strong as what came prior to that, which generally requires an right. overreaching, a super compensation stage. And that is really risky when you're already running a highish mileage. And so we all know that off just a little bit less than that, we can perform really well and we've nailed every workout along the way. So race day should be no different. And then you go a little bit above that and now we have to back a little bit off and we're not quite sure what's going to happen on race day. And if I had maybe a lab with me, 
and I was doing blood monitoring and I was, I was testing everything along the way. I could see direct trends of how things are going and I could interrupt my taper and my peak and tweak things if I needed to, but I don't have that. And so while I think it's super, it's the best way to do it when you do it the best way. But since most of us get like 80 to 95% right in training, I'd rather just do it 100% right at 90% of the way there, if that makes sense. I don't know if that math works out, but then at least you're, you're a known commodity and you can trust what you've done. I've hit every workout. I'm not changing anything. I'm just going to rest up a little extra for three days and now let's rock. Yeah, man. Yeah, I think I'm with you on that. Did you, so you're saying like instead of absolutely like hammering everything and not sure if you got the uh like the time frames of everything right instead you'll like know you're nailing your time frames but be a little conservative on your workouts so you can stay consistent yeah i would say that's about right so like for me 70 miles a week is big but i can sustain it for six to eight weeks maybe 80 miles a week i might be able to do like three or four maybe and then I'd have to, like, that would take me up to the peaking stage. And if I hit a big workout at the beginning and end of that, that would take me so far into the red that I've got to back off and I've got to taper. But then, like, I get the super compensation from that. But was it too much? And is 12 days enough? Or do I need 20? Or is 10 perfect? And now by 20, I'm already starting to erode. Like, I don't want to play that game in my mind. I want to show up trusting my armor. So, Instead of going to the 80s, I'd rather just stretch 70 out another week or two. Hit every workout the way I want to. Maybe lengthen the workouts a little bit. And then just cut it off. Rest up that week. Maybe three or four days extra. And race. Knowing that I'm more rested than I've been this block. And I'm as fit as I've ever been this block. There's no guesswork. My favorite thing about doing things exactly like that is it's like an in, in insurance. You uh, aren't like throwing things and seeing what sticks. You can once you've built something uh, and you've done it for several weeks, you you start to just like float there, and uh, it's like it's like the monk mode, right, of the running. You are doing the same thing. It's so easy to pick out what is doing what. So if you don't change yeah. like a single variable for several weeks and then you just like bump the mileage up five or you uh, add like another strain session in it's so apparent what is doing what and you can make a more intelligent decision there with greater accuracy i feel like yeah and because we don't have labs with us or maybe we're not intelligent enough we can trust six to eight weeks of proof whereas a lab could tell you after every workout what direction have we gone What's trending what way? We we read the tea leaves over the course of several weeks. Hey, I felt pretty good for a couple of straight weeks doing this thing. I'm going to tweak this thing now. Whereas, like, like we, there is a video of uh, Gustav Eden uh, talking and, um, and Christian Blumenfeld that they had to tweak their taper like 10 days out from Ironman Kona because they were trending in different ways with their lactate readings. And so they did it. They reintroduced something for Christian and they didn't for Eden. Like they have the ability to do that. I'm either not smart enough or not well supported enough to do that. And I'm at peace with that. So let me just stay at 90% or 95 and trust it and love it. Yeah. Yeah. 95. That way you show up fresh. You show up and you can dig. That's right. You're not burnt. Yeah. Dude, DJ and I, we're going to get a lactate. That's kind of true. I mean, you can get a lactate the, plus for uh, like 300 bucks. Got to have it. It's not bad. Pay no, that much for no, shoes. I don't these strips days. Are, but seriously. Strips add up. 
Um, I was going to say something, but it doesn't matter. Uh, oh, man. I think we're close to doing it. Nah, I think we're close to doing it, folks. I think we, I think we've done a decent job here today talking about whatever came up. Um, anything <laughs> that we need to we- anything that we need to wedge in there that I don't know feels like anybody needs to say in regards th- thoughts on ultra racing and training that we didn't hit, or are we are we good? I have a few I rapid fire good. after he's done. Oh, hit! Let's go. Okay. After well, what done. I was gonna say, what I was going to say, gentlemen, what a gentleman is. is yeah, and in doubt, man, there's so many resources out there. Ask us, read books, the shit's out there. And there's just more and more coming out all of the time. And I feel like I feel like the bullshit's fading away. I feel like the whole like do high intensity interval training phase is and that confusion's kind of drifting away. And some of the tried and true methods are 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 starting to float to the surface again. So heed what we say. And if you're unsure, ask. Beautiful. I love it. And there's so many people like yourself or like yourself and with a PhD who are pushing the envelope and they're inquisitive and they're testing things and they're keeping it public. It's like, to me, it's the most exciting time in endurance sports. And it's probably since like the Lydia times, I guess the most advancement we've seen in a long time. And there's science behind all of it. It's a really cool time to be doing this thing. All right. Rapid fire for you. Again, I'm going to treat you like like I'm I'm interviewing for a news for for ultra running weekly. People all ask these questions in our DM, so we're just going to ask you it now. Best socks for ultra running, dude. I've actually been wondering about socks for a while. Uh, my fiance just got me Smart Wools, uh, mm-hmm. and they're freaking awesome. Uh, they're they're crews, so they go up high enough to. Uh, I, I use Luco tape. I tape my ankles anytime I touch the trails, because uh, I've had ankle sprains and they're silly. So use Luco tape and then have a crew sock on that can like help keep it stuck to your skin. But otherwise, mud gears, dude. Mud gear socks are solid. They last forever. I just got Lisa some smart wool for Christmas. Good choice. Uh, shoes. What are you taking? I I saw a video. I think I still saw you in those light greenish. Uh, Speedlands the other day. You still rocking some of those? Oh, the light green ones. I thought you were talking about the Scott like RC carbons that I had been like plastering with super glue and plaid for the longest time. I chucked those. Yeah, dude, the the Speedland PDX they are lasting super duper well. So uh, I saw, and they're treating my foot really well. I had a little ankle thing going on, but they're as comfy as could be around the collar. Super wide foot. I was thinking about wearing the Tams because they're really fat, like they're super wide. And if there was more soft sand, I'd probably guarantee you use that because that platform on top of the sand plus the thick sole would make it really easy to glue a sand gator on. So that's one of the options. Otherwise, I might pick up a pair of the, uh, the North Face Summit Vective Pro, mm-hmm. the new boys, because the old ones treated me well. The new ones totally revamped, but it's probably good. And again, it's got all that foam to uh, glue a sand gator on. Yeah, I like that. Go to pack. Um, naked belt. Naked I'm not belt. a big fan of vests. Yeah, think about three three uh, good pouches in there. Super comfy, sticks on well. I can easily hold like two 500 mil flasks and like tuck a shirt in the back, put a hat through one of the other collars, carry a thousand calories. It's comfy. Do you rotate yeah. the flasks then to more off off center on your hips? If I have two in there, yes. If I have one, I'll have it front and center. Front and Actually, that was crazy. For, uh, for grindstone, I was trying out vest for, you know, the like nine and a half hour, almost 10 hour event. And I had two. Yep. I'm still here. Oh, that's funny. This thing wanted to end on me. I uh, 
yeah, I have four flasks. This thing has two it has two uh, little hooks on the outside that are designed to hold your uh, like a shirt or pulls. But I just like shoved two more flasks through it. So I had four flasks on my belt. It looked ridiculous. <laughs> Some guy right next to me was like, oh, man, you're, I don't know why he said this. It was so funny. He's like, oh, man, your girlfriend tell you to wear the naked belt too? Terrible idea. I'm like, nah, dude, this was my plan. It's going great. Sucks for you. That's a weird thing to be forced into by a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right what's her long game <laughs> yeah, that was hilarious <laughs> alright you got do you wear hats for ultras not really I've experimented with it but it's it's like I feel like the only time it really makes sense because bare skin is typically the best way to cool um, and I'm, I'm never hot so I, or I'm sorry I'm never cold so I don't wear things to really stay warm but I have tried wearing a light hat uh, on really hot days out here where it's dry, where I can get evaporative cooling. Mm-hmm. It's pointless on the East coast, you know, but if it's dry up here, if I keep wetting the hat, that actually does keep me pretty cool. So I'll keep messing with that. I'll probably do that if the sun's baking, you know, it's at high noon coming down on my head. All right. Then the last two questions, watch and fuel for your long stuff. Uh, Cinto Spartan ultra, no affiliation with Spartan race. It has lasted a really long time. Batteries kind of going, but it's been pretty reliable and, and, uh, it's kind of like four years without really glitching out on me. So that's pretty darn good. If you ask me and fuel scratch, dude, scratch. I love scratch labs. It treats me so well. I was averaging how many calories did I do? I did 430 calories an hour of scratch, super high carb at grindstone, no stomach issues. Wow. Uh, and that's the only weird thing is like impossible in your it's freaking great dude that cluster dextrin they know what they're doing there that cluster that's dextrin right. uh but it's in but you know it's water so if it's if you don't mind having your water be your fuel then that's the go-to otherwise i'm messing around with precision nutrition right now got an order off the feed i'm gonna try and mess around with more gels and pure water okay i'll still use a scratch for the hydration but for the actual calories i might use some gels there you go I'm satisfied. You look it. You look satisfied. Pardon. It's weird. I'm never <laughs> satisfied. It wasn't me. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> me. Leave that one in. Well, Josh, you've been very uh, you've been very generous with your time this last month. We've you've, we've gotten four hours of your time collectively. So appreciate you uh, taking time out of your busy training schedule before you go win that hundred k or whatever it is to talk to us. So thank you that 80k yeah boy no i appreciate it guys it's uh 80K. it was really cool to to get on here you know and uh 80k yeah and it's also funny the second time i was like all right i'm gonna talk slower you know i was always talking too damn fast and i got the spotify on 1.5 speed so i was glad i got that first one out of the way i was a little little rusty but it was nice to get back out here with you boys and have some good chatter you hit the ground running so just remind people where they can follow along. I know we did this at the end of your last episode, but if they want to learn more about you or anything, um, how should they reach out or follow? Uh, hit me up on, or check me out. Check me out on Instagram. It's uh, it's J-A underscore S-H-U-A underscore R-I-E-D. Joshua Reed on Instagram. I'm there. We're having a good time. He also does a better job of posting than Bracken and I do. I've been really bad lately. You post more often than we do, which is not saying much, but it is better. So <laughs> there's yeah, there's content there once in a while. Uh, all right, brother. Well, thanks, man. Um, and keep keep up the good work with your training. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it, guys. See you, boys.